Well, before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. Well, I hope that you enjoyed reading this week's Torah portion with last week's sermon in mind and that you were looking at some things and maybe taking notice of some things that the Lord values and that he is interested in. When you were reading this week, I wanna underline a few things and um, I wanna encourage you, if you have not read the Torah portion this week, to go home and read it carefully along with the Haftor and the Shah portions. But also I wanna encourage you to make this a habit every week, to, to read along with us in advance so that you come already familiar with the material that we're covering. It helps us uh, go faster and helps you get more out of it. Well, this week, again, we can see details about what God loves and what he's interested in and what he values. And one of the things that's very clear is the Lord values faithful service. He values people who keep serving him and he values people who have big talents and little talents. He values people who are faithful with a little and those who are faithful with a lot. Everyone counts. And everything that you do in service to the Lord counts. This is expressed in Hebrews chapter six, verse 10. It says this, God is not unjust. Or you could say he's not unfair. He will not forget your faithful service and the love that you've shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. He will not forget. He, he keeps it in mind. He's thinking about you and remembering how you serve others with love. And you may be in a time where you need help, you need service. Notice, notice that God is remembering you. He's paying attention to you. Now, some people can read this and they can say, well, I know, but I don't feel like I'm noticed. I don't know that God really does notice. And I believe that this week's Torah portion and some others like it, in a sense, are, are evidence that proves that God keeps track of small details and every kind of person and all that they're doing. So turn to Exodus chapter 38, and we'll start in verse 22. And if you read this week's Torah portion, you, you may notice that it, it's about accounting. That's the name. Um, and it turns out that the Lord can be a numbers geek. And, uh, you know, he's just like really interested in the numbers, which is interesting because some numbers geeks don't know you can be a, a numbers geek and a people person too. Just like some creative artists don't know, you can be creative, but you can be organized, and you can be disciplined, and you can be um, concerned with numbers too. And some type A personalities don't know you can be concerned with tasks, but also concerned with people. But as we read the Torah portions, 
in previous weeks and continue this week, you'll see that the Lord's interested in all those things, which tells us this, that the fullness of God is concerned with all those qualities, and he evidences in his own life all of those things for us. So if you want to be messianic, it's not just about being religious. It's about embracing all these seemingly um, opposite qualities. Well, let's look at Exodus 38, verse 22. Bezalel, the son of Uri, or as Rabbi Uri read it last night, the son of Uri, That's from the uh, Ukrainian translation. Bezalel, Yurdievich, <laughs> uh, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made everything that the Lord ordered Moses to make. Let's just underline this by saying it out loud. Made everything. And then verse 23, assisting him was Aholiav, the son of Achisamach of the tribe of Dan, or Don, who was an engraver, a designer, and a weaver in colors, in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and in fine linen. Now verse 24, we start getting the number stuff. All the gold used for the work and everything needed for the sanctuary, the gold of the Teruma offering weighed 29 talents, 730 shekels, which David Stern calculates to be 1,930 pounds, almost a ton of gold, using the sanctuary shekel, not one of the other shekels. Verse 25, the silver given by the congregation weighed 100 talents, 1,775 shekels, which totaled 6,650 pounds. How many tons is that? (laughs) I like the answers. Three, three and a half, three plus. I'm going with three plus. That's the level of accuracy we need today. Using the sanctuary shekel, this was a becca per person that is half a shekel, one-fifth of an ounce, using the sanctuary shekel, for everyone 20 years old or older counted in the census, 603,550 men. Now that's interesting. It's not 603,549. It's not 603,551. It's 603,550 men that they counted. The hundred talents of silver were used to cast the sockets for the sanctuary and the sockets for the curtain, 100 sockets made from the 100 talents, one talent, 66 pounds per socket, the 1,775 shekels, 50 pounds. He used to make hooks for the posts to overlay their capitals and to make fasteners for them. The bronze in the offering came to 4,680 pounds. Now before I go on, think about this. Many people come to a passage like this or this very passage or even right at this moment and you start glazing over. It's like, how much of this stuff is he going to read? <laughs> like, Rabbi, I didn't come here for this. Yeah, you did if you didn't read it on your own. Then you did come here for this. Now, people sometimes come to passages like this 
and they read it without understanding the purpose or what it reflects in God's eyes. And so they read it sort of like this, blah, 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 600, I don't know, blah, blah, fourth, whatever, get through this, I hate this book. Let's get to something juicy and deep and meaningful. And of course, some pure number geeks are just saying, this is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. I read it every day. (laughs) But I want you to take a certain perspective, have a certain attitude. Imagine you were one of the people who participated. You were one of the people who made offerings You were one of the people whose heart was stirred. You'd been moved by the Spirit of God and you wanted to see this tabernacle built. You wanted a house for the Lord. You wanted something that would honor the Lord. And you were amazed to see all the work. To read this would be something that encouraged you to know that what you did counted, that it made a difference. Verse 30. He used the bronze to make the sockets for the entrance to the tent of meeting, the bronze altar, its bronze gate, all the utensils for the altar, the sockets for the courtyard around it, the sockets for the gateway to the courtyard, and the tent pegs for the tabernacle, and all the tent pegs for the courtyard around it. And you can keep going, and you can read on and on, and you'll see, not just in this passage, but in many others, the Lord is taking notice of these details. He's keeping track and he's saying, this really counts. You know, that half shekel that each one of those people brought, it counted. It made a difference when you added it together. It was enough for everything. The Lord pays attention to everyone who participates. And even the ones who do the great things and the ones who do the small things, he's looking at and he's saying, you know, what you did counted, I was noticing you. And imagine the Spirit of God wanted these things written down so that you and I one day could look at them and take notice. And we could say, you know what, if the Lord kept track in that fashion, then I think Hebrews really is true. God won't forget about me. And my service matters. And the fact that I'm continuing to be faithful makes a difference to the Lord. He's not unmindful. Even as I go through challenges, he's paying attention. His eyes are looking. Who's out there trusting the Lord? Who's out there serving faithfully? And you might say, well, I know he takes notice of other people, but he doesn't take notice of me. So with that in mind, turn to Exodus 38, verse 8. Because there's this wonderfully obscure passage here. It says that they made the, the laver, the laver, which was the wash basin of bronze, and its base was bronze, And it was made from the mirrors of the women who would gather together to serve at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Isn't that interesting? 
And you might say, well, that's kind of weird. How do you make a bronze laver out of mirrors? Well, here's the answer to it. The mirrors in that day were made of bronze, of highly polished bronze, not of silver, and definitely not of glass with a silver coating on the back. They were made of bronze, and they were treasures. So two things we can see here. The Lord received these precious treasures. Now, I think for a lot of women today, their mirror is a treasure. How can you live without a mirror to get yourself ready? And for some of us guys, we try without them. Not so good. We do much better, don't we, when we look in the mirror? I finally learned the habit, after I get dressed, then go to the mirror again. <laughs> How many guys are still learning this one? Oh, come on, don't make me feel so alone. Okay, thank you, Sean. Thank you, Danny. At least three of us are still learning. But I can tell there are a few more that should be in this class. <laughs> But think about it, the Lord is saying, you know there's a group of women that used to gather together in a certain place, and they all were moved in the same way, they had the same idea, and they wanted to do it, and then they did it together. They took their bronze mirrors, they collected them, and they brought them as an offering. And the Lord incorporated that into the laver. And you see through this, this fascinating thing that the works of God are the works of God because they have this secret ingredient, the heartfelt contribution of the people who give the resources. It, in fact, the Lord said he didn't want to build the sanctuary with anything from anyone whose heart wasn't stirred. It's the secret ingredient. It's one of the keys. In the same way that serving with love is a secret ingredient, if you serve without love, it's, it's a waste. It does not reflect the authentic purposes that God has in mind. But I love this, that God's taking note of this group of women who maybe nobody else noticed, but he noticed. Now imagine you're one of those women, and you say, wow, hey, we made it into the Bible. That's got to be encouraging, isn't it? The Lord knows how to take notice of us. He looks at our hearts, he looks at what we do, and he counts. And for that reason, everyone counts. Everything you do counts. It's a beautiful, beautiful process. I remember when we came looking at this building. And some of you had the opportunity to look at these buildings before. How many saw this during a state of construction or rubble or something like that? And uh, Sandy gave some tours to people at different times. And some people were aghast because they were looking at what was and then looking at the rubble and stuff, and in their minds, this was more like a disaster zone. But Sandy 
was seeing what it would be. It was very interesting because she was working with an architect and the architect, who is a professional, tried to do the layout of the space and just got it, despite his skill, got it wrong. I mean, really wrong. And put things in the wrong places. And she worked countless hours figuring out how to put the sanctuary in the right place, which was right here. Um, and I was trying to get her to put it somewhere else. Yeah, I had my reasons. It just wouldn't work anywhere else. But as a result, now we have like this beautiful view of the lake and we can watch who's late coming in from the parking lot. <laughs> but when this was a cluster of offices right here with eight foot ceilings and a bathroom right in the middle and I know some people came through and thought, you guys are out of your mind. But actually, Sandy could see it clearly. And all along, she, would say, she could see what would be. And thus, what was was just a step in that direction. And that's how the Lord worked with Moses, too. Moses saw the whole thing. And so he was instructing his, his team, here's how to make the parts, but if you read carefully, you'll see Moses put it all together. And that's why the scripture says that the builder um, has more honor than the house. Because without the builder, there is no house. The builder puts together the whole thing and sees it. And so there are times when I'm standing here, I, I have a view you don't have. I get to look at your lovely faces. I get to look at those of you who need to learn how to comb your hair. I just, I hate to comb my hair. Yeah, that's why I glue it. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. So I only have to do it once a day. <laughs> Unless I'm getting dressed up again and then I have to show myself to my wife. <laughs> it's just like, ah, fix this. And I'm like a little boy. Oh, drat. <laughs> but in any case. To be able to see the end result, this is very important. But what's also important is to see that every part contributes to the end result. That Moses couldn't do it on his own, right? Nor did he try to. The great artisans couldn't do it on their own, they assembled teams, right? But they couldn't do it just together. It was the whole community joining together. And in the same way, the Lord builds a house for himself and builds a congregation for himself. And some need to have the big picture, but everyone's part is important. Everyone's part is important. Now with that in mind, I wanna move into a related topic that you may not see the connection at first, but I hope I can make it clear. It's from a passage we didn't look at earlier in this series of readings in Exodus 32, where the golden calf is made. And it's probably a story that's familiar to many of you. You know it's a golden calf. It's not, 
you know, golden corral or something else. It is what it is. And if you remember the context, Moses was on the mountain receiving from the Lord the, the tablets with Torah, and he spent 40 days fasting and praying and receiving from the Lord. It was a powerful time. But the people grew antsy while he was gone. And you and I know how things develop, that he does come back. They thought he wouldn't. And the scripture says, Exodus 32, starting in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And Aaron told them, take off the gold earrings that are on your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. And all the people took off their gold earrings and they brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from their hands and with an engraving tool, he fashioned it into a molten calf. And they said, oh Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the calf and proclaimed, tomorrow shall be a feast to Hashem. And so the next day they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And the Hebrew indicates it was immorality. And so on one hand, they were trying to concretize the presence of God by making an idol. But they were doing something that really wasn't pleasing to the Lord. And it was following in the ways of the other nations. But on the other hand, they were just directly moving in the, in the wrong direction. Because they mixed immorality with spirituality. It's a dangerous recipe when you do that. So while that's going on, the Lord says, uh-oh, there's trouble down there. Go check it out and do something. And so Moses comes down and it says in verse 19, he approached the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. He burned with anger, he threw the tablets out of his hands. The ones that God had just written on. And he smashed them at the base of the mountain. And then he took the calf they'd made, he burned it in fire, he ground it to powder, he scattered the powder over the face of the water, and then he forced the Israelites to drink it. Whew. Now as you read on, you'll see this was such a serious offense that it resulted in the death of 3,000 people who had participated. And I want to focus on that number again, just for a moment. 3,000 people paid with their lives. 3,000 people. Now here's what I want you to think about. That's all. That's all. Now think about this. Because some people have said, well maybe only 3,000 were actually guilty. But it really would have been 3,001 because Aaron was guilty, but he was spared. So that's led others to say, no, it wasn't 3,000 who were guilty. Many more were guilty, but when Moses came down, they repented. 
So as 3,000 who continued to resist Moses when he rebuked everyone about the sin. Aaron, in a sense, repented. Moses asked for mercy for Aaron. God was so angry with Aaron, he was ready to include him, and it'd be 3,001, but Moses pleaded, and Aaron softened, and the whole thing turned around. But in either case, I want to focus on something. 3,000 people can lead a nation astray. 3,000 people have the potential to turn millions in a terrible direction. In fact, one person was able to lead the whole nation back to the Lord. That's what Moses did. One person did it. One person could make the difference Moses did. But think about this, because you might say, yeah, but Moses was exceptional. Two people can change history for the better. Two midwives in Egypt did. There would never have been a Moses if there had not been two women of moral courage who feared the Lord and were not afraid of the consequences to them by refusing to do what Pharaoh had said. Two women changed the course of history. 120 people can change everything. That's how many disciples of Yeshua stayed together in Jerusalem to receive the Holy Spirit before Shavuot. And I'm bringing these numbers to your attention because sometimes you can, you can think about what's going on in the world around us. And you could look at, at the situation in the world today, in the U.S. today, in other countries, and you could be disheartened. You could see what happened in Congress just this past week, where Congress didn't have the fortitude to condemn the anti-Semitism that was being vilely uttered. And you could be disheartened by the anti-Semitism, by the anti-Zionism, by the hatred of Jews and the hatred of Israel. And you could just give up and you could say, there are so many of them. Well, there was a moment when Elijah was ready to give up after his victory. And he said, it's just me. And the Lord said, wrong. I've been hiding away several thousand who have been faithful. It's not just you. But get up and go back and do what you're called to do. As we're preparing for Purim this month, remember this. True extremists can destroy us even when they're few in number, if you let them. If you think of yourself as powerless. But remember this, it may get down to one person who's really planning evil and one person who stands up with moral courage to defeat that evil plan. It may get down to that. Or it may get down to 100,000 or a million who just need to stand up. In Europe during World War II, in every country where the king defied the Nazis, the Jews were protected. One person was all it took. And when many people together in, in, in Denmark, when the, the citizens of Denmark, the subjects of King Christian, put on the yellow star which the Jews were ordered to wear, and they wore it together and the Nazis couldn't tell who's who, 
and they understood something. There's solidarity here. We can't do the evil we were planning to do. That's all it took, in a sense. There are many good-hearted people who, who are silent these days. They're not extremists, but they're afraid of being called extremists. They're not haters, but they're afraid of being called haters, and they don't know what to do. And I would say, take a lesson from the teachings of, about Bezalel. And the reason I use Bezalel is because he appears before the golden calf incident. He's absent at the golden calf incident. He's not a party to that. And then he reappears after that. It's a way, it's a literary device that the Torah uses to say, Bezalel stood apart from this evil and he was being used for good. And what were his character traits? First of all, he was full of the Holy Spirit. That's what the scripture says. Second, he had wisdom and he had a wise heart. He had understanding, he had knowledge, and he had ability. And those combined to enable him to do good to build the house of the Lord. Be wise-hearted, be full of the Spirit. That's what we need to do. We need to be courageous and we need to be strong. We need to say to one another, chazak, be strong. And I was thinking of one of Yeshua's favorite sayings. It, it, it comes in several different forms, but one of the versions is this. Don't be afraid, take courage. Another time he said, this is a translation, of course he wasn't speaking English. He said, take heart, it is I. I like that, it is I. For all you uh, grammar correct folk, you'll appreciate that. It is I, do not be afraid. Be courageous, don't be afraid. Remember this, your faith counts, your courage counts, your loving service and acts of kindness count. The Lord counts on you, everyone counts. Everyone, and everything you're doing counts. And it's time for us to be wise-hearted and to learn how to communicate to the many who are silent and wondering, but they're afraid to ask. Some are afraid to say because they don't want to be called a hater, a phobic about this or a phobic about that. And that's enough for a lot of people just to say, well, I'm not gonna say anything. The worst possible thing we could do is say nothing. The second worst possible thing we could do is just yell at the other ones. Have you ever seen two people yelling? <laughs> They're not listening to each other. They're just yelling at each other. That's not communication. Good communication requires that you understand how someone thinks and how they value things and you learn how to reach into their understanding across different lines. So in the weeks to come, we're gonna have some practical lessons on how to communicate about anti-Semitism, how to communicate about anti-Zionism, how to communicate why you stand in favor of Israel and why you are courageous, and to learn how to do that in ways that are just not by Bible thumping. 
Can I say that here? Because other people say it. Oh, they're just a Bible thumper. You, you, some people you can, um, you can persuade or you can educate through the scripture. Some you can't. Some you have to use other reasons, other ways of reasoning. Like about Israel, biblical reasoning is good. But shared values is another way of reasoning. And historic relations is another way of reasoning. And when you can learn how to do all of that, you can be effective in communicating with people. Now, you're not going to necessarily win those on the extreme. But we're in such times, if you can win some of the people who just don't know what to do, and they're in the middle, and they're just wondering, and if some more can think clearly and stand up for life in different ways and stand up for justice in many ways and stand up for what God prizes and values, you know what? It could be enough. It could be enough. And at Purim, you got to remember the Purim message. It's not about getting out of town. It's about staying put but winning. And it's about everyone joining together and doing their part so that the victory belongs to the Lord. That's what it's about. That's what I hope we'll take to heart. So you're going to have to learn some information. You're going to have to pay attention. You're going to have to learn how to think about some things, maybe some history you need, some understanding you need that you don't have. You may have nice feelies, you know, and good, wonderful emotions, but they may not be persuasive. So you have to learn, and we're going to focus on that for a few weeks. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Bezalel, who was so creative, but he was so practical. And he was able to create out of nothing, but he was also able to instruct. And he was a man who was full of your Holy Spirit, and we want to be like that. We want to be full of your Spirit, and he had wisdom and a wise heart. He had understanding, he had knowledge, he had discernment, and he had ability. And we want to join together and to grow in all those areas so that we as a community can accomplish more and we can have a greater impact on others. And let it be that we don't give up, that we exercise courage and we're not afraid, and that we thank you for the day that we're living in and for this age. Even though this is a corrupt generation and an evil age, Lord, you've called us to be a shining light here and to bring good news to those who are desperate and in trouble. And let our hearts be filled with willingness, with wisdom, with understanding, and with knowledge so we can do that. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. And don't forget, at uh, 1 o'clock, we'll meet in the Talmudim room for the welcome class for all of you who are participating in that. May the Lord bless you. May he keep watch over you and protect you. May he cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. 
Amen. Shabbat Shalom, and there's fellowship coffee and refreshments next door.